Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Josephine Nelson, Associate Professor of Law at Villanova University, where she holds a courtesy appointment in the Department of Management Operations at the Villanova University School of Business. She's a senior fellow at the Zicklin Center for Business Ethics Research at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business and writes professionally under the name J.S. Nelson. We'll be discussing her recent article, Management Culture and Surveillance, which was published by the Seattle University Law Review as part of its Symposium on Corporate Culture. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Josephine, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm so pleased to be here. You open this paper with a pretty striking discussion and picture of pretty intrusive surveillance technologies that are being used in schools and workplaces. Could you set that picture a little bit for our listeners and maybe discuss some of what your motivation for this article was and what are some of the questions that you set out to explore? Absolutely. I'd be pleased to do that. So the reason why I started with a pretty stark illustration of what I thought of as highly pervasive and invasive surveillance is because I wanted to get a reaction. I feel as though so much of the surveillance that is around us, we have accepted. And I think actually that's a problem with privacy law that we can talk about later in the piece. The opening scene that I paint is actually a piece from the Wall Street Journal in which they're describing conditions for school children in China. The school children in China are sitting at their desks. They are wearing headbands that flash in different colors depending on how intensely the child is concentrating. There's a robot in the classroom that's monitoring the children's body language and their body temperature and all the other pieces of physical data around them. The information from the headband is sent directly to a console at the teacher's desk. And remember, we're talking very young school children. And the teacher can use that information in real time to call on the children, to push the children, to embarrass the children, should that be what the teacher chooses to do. That information is also sent home daily to parents who then use that information to what we're hearing the parents do with it is punish their children for not paying attention. And all of this is being supported and justified in the name of producing the workplace of the future, that the Chinese state needs to push its people so hard, even when they are so small, that there's a competition to concentrate as much as possible, to have the right readings go up to the teacher's desk, to not be penalized for what's happening to them at home. And there's an interview with a child who says, look, when we first put this headband on, we felt that it was controlling us, that this was a scary experience for that child and for other children. And if you think about it, that's a very different environment for children to grow up in. It's a very different environment to think of as childhood, right? We think of childhood often as play, expression, creativity. But if you are constantly being monitored for your focus, for your attention, for your body posture when you're five, six, seven, eight years old, 
that's a very different environment to be raised in and to have expectations put on you. So I wanted to highlight that I thought that that still had some shock value for Americans, mm-hmm. but if you have that reaction to children being monitored at that level, and remember we have lower standards for invasions of privacy of children than we do for adults, how should you feel about that exact same situation in the workplace? Well, guess what? That same technology is being used in China in factories to push workers to, to work harder, to never take breaks, to focus constantly. And think about what that environment feels like. Certainly, it would lead to increases in productivity, but at what human cost, right? What's that experience going to be like? What's that workplace going to feel like? And I hope that still shocks us because increasingly we're seeing this kind of technology borrowed across the world, industry by industry, company by company, and the justification becomes, oh, it's a business necessity. We have to push people to produce at these rates, to be concentrating at every moment of every day. But I want us to still feel something for whether that's the workplace of the future that we should have. And I think we need to have that conversation now rather than later because that technology is here and it's coming. And it very much changes the dynamic between the manager and the worker. I don't use the language of employee and employer because there are lots of different workplace arrangements. So I'm deliberately using the language of manager and worker. But that relationship in the workplace is becoming something very different with that level of surveillance and that pervasiveness and intrusiveness. And you know, you might say, well, this is science fiction. This is what's happening in China. We're, it's never going to come here. But I do want to say that modern surveillance of all types is increasingly pervasive and invasive, and we have all kinds of surveillance that, you know, much of it originated in China, but much of it originated elsewhere for monitoring the workplace. We have, you know, all emails are routinely monitored, keyboard strokes in the U.S. are routinely monitored, your texts and social media are often monitored. In fact, if you work in the financial sector, it's often required that you turn over access to your text and all of your social media. Uh, we have biometrics, such as facial recognition to enter office buildings. We have, you know, iris scans. We have GPS and fitness tractors that are a regular part of our interaction with management in the workplace, right? And those can collect things like heart rate, location constantly, steps, walk, your temperature, right? Frankly, they can tell whether you're having sex. <laughs> and, and for women, they can predict menstruation cycles, right? They have all that information. And then you're talking about even more invasive technology, which is already here in the U.S. and is spreading across the workplace. You're talking about implantables, right? Literally where somebody gets a small capsule injected, typically between the thumb and the forefinger, on their hands, but that gives them access to the office building, cafeteria, discounts in the cafeteria, right? There's no taking that out or taking that off. In fact, if you work on an oil rig in most parts of the United States, you're required to be microchipped. The rationale is that if you fall off the oil rig, they need to goop you up out of the water, but think about the implications of being microchipped constantly, right? That doesn't leave you when you leave the rig. And aren't there other ways keep people from falling into the water on oil rigs, right? Maybe netting, for example. (laughs) I mean, you could think of other things. And then 
even more physically intrusive, there are workers who are strapped to exoskeletons and physically moved from place to place. This, this quality of interacting with technology is really changing. But what was striking for me is it's both old and it's new. It may have new pieces to the technology. Maybe the, what we can actually do with the technology is different and because it's, it's all around us all the time. It's literally strapped to our bodies. It's inside our bodies. It's on our foreheads reading our brainwaves. But the methods that management then picks up and implements with that technology, those are actually very old. And that's the point I really wanted to make. And I wanted to say, I want to get back to the issue of the technology and just say, that raised the concern for me, but I also want to raise the flag generally on this issue and start the conversation generally on this issue because it's really far more pervasive in our workplace and in our experience than we understand. So just to give a couple statistics because I'm not sure people see this everywhere. In 2018, so it's actually fairly old data for how fast the subject moves. More than 70% of businesses admitted that they use people analytics, which is a nice word for this kind of technology, and artificial intelligence to monitor their workforces. Uh, in 2019, less than a third of CEOs who admit that they collect data on their workers personally felt that their companies use the data responsibly, right? So that's a real flag. I think that there's a lot of discomfort around the, having all this data and how this data is collected and then how it's used. And then it's really telling, I think, that even though businesses know that worker consent essentially waives management's liability for surveillance, 56% of business leaders admit that their companies do not ask workers for their consent, right? So they know that all they have to do is get consent, even if that's as flimsy as having put it in the handbook. But the managers are not getting that kind of consent, I think, because they are uncomfortable. I think that's what it, that, this says. I think that says that they are, they don't like the direction is this, that this is going. They feel that they have to use this kind of technology. They feel that their competitors use this sort of technology, but that nobody feels comfortable around the rules for this kind of data collection, uh, the use of such data, the implications of such data, I really think it's time to have this conversation. And I really think another thing that's coming from the business community is that business people are frustrated by the presumption, well, there, there's a split of opinion here, right? There's some business people, some managers are really excited and want all the data they can collect, and <laughs> you know, as much surveillance as they can possibly get. But I think what you're also seeing in those numbers, especially CEOs who admit that they don't feel that their companies use the data responsibly, is that they want more guidance. They want more assurance that this is what they're supposed to be doing and how they're supposed to be doing it. And I think they feel pushed often, for example, in the financial space by regulators who tell them you have to collect this kind of data on workers, in part because we want to, you to have a good compliance system. Well, I think that there's also a problem here with the regulators pushing business people to collect this kind of data, even though, and I think that this is what the business people are feeling and this is what the regulators need to know, 
we know from social science research that over-surveillance can actually destroy employee morale. It can create lack of employee ethical engagement and more unethical behavior. So exactly this whole push by regulators to monitor, monitor, monitor may be creating a lot of the unethical behavior that they're worried about. And I think business people know that there's a toll to this kind of surveillance on the job, but they feel pressed. You know, because their competitors are doing it and their regulators are trying to um, push this on them to up the levels of surveillance and the technology is there and the tools are there and the whole thing is spreading and it's time to have a conversation about how these things are used, why they're used, and what that feels like for workers in the workplace. I think that there's a very important story that's being lost here about the psychological harm from such pervasive and invasive surveillance, right? And I think we'll talk later in our conversation about the very dark history of modern management and how these tools have been used in the past and why we especially need to pay attention to this and need to be cautious about this history, need to be cautious about how these tools are used and should listen to those warning signs that we're hearing from the business community and elsewhere in thinking about new legal rules and a new legal framework that really takes into account what the harm could be to workers and protects workers a little more from the changes in the workplace to become this all-encompassing, literally brainwave-reading environment in which there is no, no retreat. So that's a little bit of maybe a stark future and perhaps still a stark current reality. And you allude to some of the history behind workplace surveillance, and I thought that was an interesting discussion in the paper. Could you maybe describe, sketch out the history for the listeners in a way you make the point that what's new is old again or what's old is new again in terms of workplace surveillance? I want to preface this discussion by saying that I think this might shock some of your listeners, (laughs) and I think it's upsetting to some listeners, but I think it's really important to bring the research that coming out in other disciplines into the discussion in law. So as I talk about some of these other findings, listeners might cringe that there might be a backlash to discussing these things, but I want people to know that I'm talking about work that's being done in other disciplines, primarily history, management studies, sociology, and other disciplines where these findings are now well-established. So I'm not making this up. (laughs) I'm pulling the findings from other disciplines and making sure that we have a conversation about what those findings mean in law. So let me start there and say that, of course, as you're talking about what's old and what's new, right, we've always had the monitoring of workers to ensure that they're doing their jobs, right? That's not new. And we need to check up on people who are doing jobs as long as we have other people who do work that delegated. But what is new is this technology, and that's some of what we've talked about already, to surveil workers and how it has these new qualities of being particularly invasive and pervasive. I think those are, and that the technology allows surveillance to get to a whole new level of being a completely surrounding you in an environment, in fact, being injected into you or you're being strapped into it. And I've, a particular concern to us should be that although the technologies to surveil workers may be new, the methods, and I, I kind of hinted at this in the answer to the earlier question, the methods being used are old. And I want to say it needs to be part of the debate, front and center, that those methods were developed on the slave plantations of the U.S. South and the West Indies. So I want to 
describe some of that history, uh, kind of sketch that a little bit for listeners. But I also want to say that in talking about this, there's I, I really stand on the shoulders of many other people who are doing this work, and I'll, I'd like to make sure that I attribute, you know, the fantastic work in archives and the fantastic work elsewhere to to the people who really did that work. So let me sketch for you a little history of workplace surveillance and its development so that you can see where these changes really fit. What I'm talking about are the, it was a real revolution in workplace surveillance techniques and management techniques in the plantations of the U.S. South and the West Indies. This is Caitlin Rosenthal's work, and she does a great job going through literally the plantation records through the beginning of the Civil War, just taking apart how it is that on the plantation, the plantation owners were thinking of enslaved people as literally property, but also how they were thinking constantly about how they could get the most out of their property, how they could make those enslaved people work as hard as possible, how they could surveil them at all times, how they could get production quotas. The real revolution on the plantations of the U.S. South and the West Indies was this idea of calculating and measuring what it is that people could do. So we move from the gang system, which was the previous system in which enslaved people worked for specific periods of time under supervision. So you might think of this as still existing along the sides of roads when prisoners are put into groups to work alongside the road. That might be a, a work gang, right? Literally a gang system. But the innovation that was developed in the slave plantations of the U.S. South and the West Indies does to that previous gang system is all of a sudden create a task system, right? Start talking about production quotas per enslaved person. So whether that was bales of cotton to be picked or it was numbers of horseshoes to be built or whatever it was for the day they were now production quotas. In fact, the historical records show that enslaved people on those plantations were actually given monetary bonuses. So there's, there's, for the first time, this is the development of the task system and the people who oversaw it were task masters, so all of that language is deeply entwined with slavery. You also have the idea of these monetary bonuses. And so as these historians and management studies people are going back through these historic records, they are really upending a lot of our understanding of how slavery worked in those plantations and helping us understand, for example, and I want to deal with a whole bunch of different kinds of things that people may not know about that, the system of slavery there and how it was developed and how it so closely echoes the modern workplace that you know, enslaved people used money, right? There was a, enslaved people used money, that there was a whole economy around how enslaved people were compensated with money, you know, got money for their work, traded in goods and services, and had full economies themselves. I think a really important thing to bring out that people may not know about the system of slavery at the time was, well, two things. One, that there were horrendous physical punishments, but the physical punishments were largely tied to economic incentives on the part of the people who were running the plantations. 
that the whole system of slavery and the physical punishments connected to driving people in that system of slavery, the, the physical punishments were often reserved for times at which other production methods didn't work. So the caste system was ubiquitous. The, you know, the monetary bonus system and these other systems of incentives that become the basis of modern management were the first line of defense. And yes, there was there were tremendous harms and brutality from the slavery system, but new research is really showing that, first and foremost, the system on the plantations was often an economic system that was created in a, in a system of management that was created first. And then finally, I think it's really important for people to know that slavery was wildly profitable. I think that there's a myth that started before the Civil War and was on both sides of the argument around slavery that slavery was unprofitable. And really, it was the factories in the North that were profitable. Indeed, you know, research now is showing that slavery was wildly profitable. So it really was a way of increasing production dramatically. It made fortunes that were unheard of at the time. There's evidence, Matthew Desmond talks about how the concentration of banking capital in New Orleans, which was the capital of the slave-owning South, was far more than in New York City. This is, is really interesting historical research coming out about the system of slavery. But one of the things I wanted to say about this was it's important to understand the system. It's important to understand the roots of modern management as being in this system. And it's also important to understand that the use of the system is not inevitable, right? We made a conscious decision not to allow slavery to exist. And we made it, and we have the 13th Amendment. We have other protections that are supposed to keep the systems of slavery and the shadows of slavery, the badges and incidents of slavery out of our current system of workplace management. And we really lost that. So that's what's new and that's what's old. I can talk to you about the history of how those systems from the slave plantations of the U.S. South and the West Indies came into modern management and literally became whitewashed and politically acceptable. But that's, those are their roots. And that's increasingly what the research is finding and is increasingly being supported and is now, I don't think, contestable. I think that, that we have to look that square in the face. And I, I want to be very careful and say I am not, as I talk about the use of surveillance techniques and the history of modern management, not saying that the harms that workers are experiencing from the use of surveillance techniques that those harms are, do not equate to the harms of being an enslaved person under slavery, not at all. The harms of slavery were far more vast, far more brutal in every other way, do not compare. But I am saying that there is a piece of this surveillance issue, these harms, which are a psychological harm. And we're learning more and more as we look at the psychological literature as to what those harms really are for people. And I think that those harms can be very dangerous. I think those harms can be damaging to all kinds of what we describe as the human condition. And I think we've been here before, and I think that we need to call this out and have this conversation with that backdrop. So that's the potential future and the the present and also some of the history of workplace surveillance. And in the paper, you raise several critical questions that we should be asking as part of that conversation as a society and as scholars when it comes to workplace surveillance. Could you touch on what those questions are that we should be thinking about and should be asking? Yeah, I'd be happy to. 
I'd be also happy to talk a little bit more about how that whitewashing, literal whitewashing management techniques from slavery came into the modern uh, workplace, because I think that's an important tie that gets sure. lost. So we should come to that. But, but let me talk to you a little bit about some of the other things that are takeaways that I would argue really are should be part of the discussion about monitoring and about surveillance of employees. I think as you're thinking about this really as a question of the experience of the surveillance, right, because I'm concerned about lack of employee ethical engagement, this, it actually pushes people over monitoring, pushes workers to behave in all kinds of ways that are unethical, they really hurt the workplace and the workplace environment. But you need to think about what that hurt is to people. And I think that we need to start thinking about what that psychological harm is and start evaluating workplace surveillance in terms of protecting the workers being surveilled and the, and the humanity of the workers being surveilled. I think that given the history of modern management, that's really got to be the question. And so I really want to encourage any future discussion of workplace surveillance to think about who's impacted, right? This is really an inquiry into how extensive the surveillance is and who experiences it. So, for example, when we were talking about the GPS monitoring, do businesses really have to monitor all their employees for their locations at all times? What if most people don't leave the building? Or what if, you know, they're not traveling by transportation that has anything to do with the business. There's no reason why you need that information about the experience of the worker outside the workplace. And then the degree of impact. This has to do with how the surveillance is experienced. So it's the impact that the surveillance will have on the psyche of workers. So I think it's really important, and you can look at the history of psychology and the idea of being backstage, right? Professor uh, Zuboff picks this up in her new book on uh, surveillance capitalism, that this is really important to have moments in which you turn off monitoring, that you can be yourself and be backstage, right? So I think it's important to have a line that is not a couple things, that there's really a continuum that's broken down between what is physically in the workplace, what's physically not in the workplace, and the boundaries of both time, right? You don't clock in, clock out anymore. You might take your personal devices home and use them in your bedroom around the clock and use the rest of that. So the time walls break down, but also the physical boundaries of the workplace break down as you start to bring your devices into home, and those devices have the surveillance software from your employer on them, like monitoring your whereabouts, monitoring what you say. Literally, you know, the, the microphones can be turned on, the cameras can be turned on remotely to watch you, and compliance officers will admit that they do this. They often have to get levels of permission in order to do this, but they have done this and done this many times when it comes to finding out what's happening with someone when they're not at work. And then what's the legitimate reason to do this, right? And will that have a discriminatory impact, such as, you know, do you need to know your female employee's fertility status and their menstrual cycle? What business of this is the employer to know this, right? You really need to think about what that tells employees that they've turned over all that information, that that the trackers and the monitors and the on Fitbits and everything else and the apps can pick this stuff up. And then, of course, there's a particular concern about how monitoring is experienced, right? So this has to do with there being a degrees of monitoring that are more physically invasive than others. You know, do you really have to put a microchip in someone? Is that 
part of their workplace requirements, really, because that would seem to, you know, especially given the history of management, the physical alteration of a person by a manager sounds like a slippery slope. This is dangerous. Right? This is something that seems to go beyond the bounds of someone's role as a worker and what you need to know about them as a worker, that to have them microchipped at all times. And then, you know, this idea of strapping the workers into exoskeletons to be moved from place to place. Or, you know, Amazon famously has patented on a wristband that literally you can strap it to a worker's wrist and it will, with haptic vibration, which is the feedback, take their hand to the exact bin. Like, literally make them a robot <laughs> by taking their hand to the exact bin where the item that the man the pick is located. So that's concerning. And then... We need to ask bigger questions about, are the data needed, right? This is a question about how much additional information can get swept up in the collection of data. So if you do have a specific need as a manager for GPS monitoring during certain times, do you have to have the, you know, just because it may be cheaper to have them wear some kind of a Fitbit or a tracker, fitness tracker, you're also then picking up the health information, you know, heartbeat, step swap, sleep patterns, temperature, all these other things, right? Is that, is that needed? What are you going to do with that data? You know, and for the workers, it should be concerned about what happens to that data, either while they're on the job or after they leave, right? That's their personal data that they have surrendered, but there's no plan for how to handle this or what is done with that data, and that data can be, you know, crunched and analyzed and all kinds of things can be with that. And then finally, I do want to bring up this big question of, is the effort to do so much surveillance ultimately counterproductive in the long term, right? And I think we need to ask those questions up front rather than long after the horse has left the barn. So, you know, have we changed the workplace to destroy worker morale and ethical engagement, right? I really, it disturbs me greatly that a lot of this, as you talk to business people, they describe it as being driven by regulators, right? And I want regulators to think about what the consequences are of creating regulations and expectations where there must be surveillance and more surveillance. And if the business has not surveilled workers enough, then it's considered a lack of good compliance control and the, the business is presumptively at fault for what's going on, right? I think that that, that is also driving the change in the workplace and the change in the experience of what it means to be a worker and how you work and the freedom of work. And so that actually leads me a little bit, if I could, to describing some of the history of the changes in work over time, if you want to talk a little bit about that. So I really think that one, that it's always useful to have these discussions because we really only know about our modern environment, <laughs> and I don't think we have much of a recollection of how things have changed over time in the workplace, and having that discussion helps highlight what those changes are and helps us think about whether those are the changes that we want to have made in the workplace and whether we want to keep those changes in the workplace. So certainly over time, if you look at the history of the development of the workplace, we have more and more invasively monitored people. and not always with a good intent, right? Or not always with the best methods and not always in the best ways. <laughs> Obviously, I do want to start with saying that monitoring workers is something that we've had to do since the beginning of time to make sure that jobs are done, but it's the quality of that monitoring and the invasiveness of that monitoring that I think our modern discussion doesn't 
take into account. So, for example, I really do trace this from, you know, the guilds in the Middle Ages. I think it's important for people to know that workers who worked in the guilds uh, worked on projects, but they and they had amazing degrees skill and the rest of it, but they had great freedom to control their own projects as long as they got them done. So they could control their own pace of work. They took breaks as they needed to. That was part of the dignity of work of being a craftsperson. I think that this really starts to change when you think about the spread of slavery of all kinds. So we have feudalism in Europe, but we also have the serf system in Russia. And as you remember, Russia got slavery because serfs were essentially slaves of different types, uh, much later than other parts of Europe, certainly, and it lasted much longer than other parts of Europe, and it really was all these developments around controlling serfs, slaves, that were the early discussions of the Panopticon. It was certainly what Jeremy Bentham, the famous 18th into the 19th century philosopher, was looking at when he was talking about the Panopticon, this idea that there would be a central point centralized observation of workers and what they were doing. And he was really interested in two parts of that surveillance, right? He was interested both, and I think this is really important for modern times, he was interested both in the centralized control of the serf, of the worker, right? Jeremy Bentham was actually writing about this as he was visiting his brother Samuel Bentham, who was creating a factory for the Prince Potemkin. So it was literally a factory for serfs, for slaves. So it was how you control people in that setting. And then Bentham is thinking about slavery in the New World. He's thinking about slavery elsewhere as he's writing these things. By the way, I want to give huge credit to Frederick Rosen for a lot of this research and thinking about this, and also to other scholars who have been talking about this. And that the two pieces of what Bentham is interested in the slavery system, right, the centralized control from the center of the panopticon out That's one type of control, but he's also interested in the paranoia that's created inside the worker from the possibility of being watched. That's very much part of Bentham's model. And I think that that's part of modern surveillance, because if you think about a centralized control room or you think about a compliance officer getting all of these reports about all the keystrokes that everyone in the building is, you know, making all of the you know, literally their badges with Bluetooth information that analyzes your speech and your movements and your emotions and your, in fact, they can look at your sexuality with some of this data, right? That there's a centralized control system that it, if you look at the advertisements for compliance officers and compliance software, they talk about a, a single desktop pop-up uh, system which will centralize all this stuff for you and then you can see what's happening across the building and you can set up flags if somebody goes to the wrong place or says the wrong thing or meets with the wrong person or, you know, any of these things, right? So it's just it's exactly like the control room that Bentham was thinking about. It just has dashboards on it instead of, you know, people with binoculars or something looking from one part of the prison or, or the factory floor where the serfs are to another. And then if you're thinking about how these ideas of control and surveillance come through the, we're moving from the late 18th century into the early 19th century, we were thinking about how the, the slave plantations of the U.S. South and the West Indies at the time, there's this interested, they're really interested in watching people, right? So one thing that's part of the reason, and this is Caitlin Rosenthal's work and, and other people's work, part of the reason why the real innovation in management and the roots of modern management come from the slave plantations of the 
U.S. South and the West Indies is because at the time people are trapped, right? You can push the workforce. You can you can do experiments on the workforce to find out what it is that that workforce will do and not do. Whereas labor could just leave a factory, so that's not a good source of experimentation. But when you have captive people, right, that's when you can find out how far you can push someone, how much you can make them work, how much you can, what particular set of incentives will make them do one thing versus another. So you can see all the experimentation is happening on the plantations, and they have people completely locked down, and they're thinking about them in terms of livestock, like literally, and this should, this should be incredibly distasteful to all your listeners and really make people cringe, literally treating them as livestock with the branding and the measuring and the outputs and the inputs and, you know, all the ways that we would think of thinking about cattle, people as cattle. That's suddenly the mindset that's happening on those plantations when they're thinking about the economic input and output of each enslaved person. So that's how we get that huge set of development task system that we talked about before and the bonus system that we talked about before. Well, and I think if you think about all of those, especially the, the roots of those words in slavery, it should upset us that one of the major players in the gig economy is called task rabbit. Supposedly one in five Americans work in the gig economy and they work on this system of bonuses and tasks and rewards and all these sticks and carrots that were developed you know, right there on the plantation. Are, are now coming straight into it's relayed by software <laughs> instead of the taskmaster, but you're still working and you're, the, you're, you're still doing tasks. I think that that needs to be emphasized. And then I think that there's a real, and a lot of the research on the quality of slavery and what was happening in slave plantations is also being done by great people like Matthew Desmond, Seymour Dresser, and others who are really thinking about what this means in terms of the prototype of the modern economy, how closely all these things echo what it is that we're seeing today. But I want to talk about specifically how those techniques end up in management today and how we've lost this history of where their roots were in slavery because I think that's an important part of the story that people either don't know or haven't fully come to grips with. And I think that that's got to be brought front and center because this is work that many people have been doing. This is, again, Caitlin Rosenthal's work. This is Robert Canicle's work. This is on many other people's work. And then after the Civil War, when management in chaos, right, there was an engineer named Frederick Winslow Taylor, and he effectively rebrands all those techniques that were specifically developed in slavery at the plantations, and he calls them his principles of scientific management. And so all of a sudden, they come from science. They're, you know, laws of nature. Everything's measurable. The human being is a robot. So now you can hear some of the echoes of that other, those other harms. Again, you're not talking about the humanity of the person. You're talking about their units of work. You're talking about them as a robot, as a machine with tolerances for certain things. And it, it, it denies the humanity of workers. I think the specific historic tie to slavery is there because Frederick Winslow Taylor was actually born before the Civil War, and one of his top deputies was born into a slaveholding family as a slave master and learned the techniques of running the plantations because these were widely disseminated and studied and they were in the journals of their time. And he literally is bringing the task system from slavery into the principles of scientific management, and he... It admits that he doesn't like the word because it has connotations in slavery, that he admits that, you know, it's distasteful, but he says, look, it works. 
it absolutely works. And we want to borrow all the techniques, but we just want to not take any of the historical baggage that comes with them. Um, I'm not sure you can do that. And, and I think if you look at the time, Congress knew what was happening. So there were actually congressional hearings in 1911 and 1912 that specifically explore whether Taylor's techniques were, in fact, simply the reintroduction of techniques in the slave system. I mean, this was front and center in, in the conversation at the time. These people had, you know, the Civil War was within living memory. You're talking about the task system. You're talking about these other systems that were used to literally drive enslaved people and the work on plantations. And here they're just being rebranded as scientific management. Aren't these the same thing? And the article goes through those debates, and you can really see the echo of the current discussion right there. All of those concerns would have been the end of Taylorism had it not been for the beginning of World War One. And the country, especially our government on wartime footing, completely embraces Taylorism and appoints Taylor's top deputy to speed ship production for the war, right? And Henry Ford uses Taylor's techniques in his production factories at home. And Taylorism spreads across Europe with the end of the war. And so it's really hard to talk about the modern workplace without talking about Taylorism. Taylorism and techniques has been borrowed by everybody. So there are all kinds of other modern foundational myths of management, that it came from the railroad, that it was Henry Ford, that it was here, that it was there, this next place. And we can find them all traced back to these techniques on the slave plantation. And we can find them having been whitewashed by Taylor and then brought out in, in the general discussion. And I think to come full circle back to where we started with the discomfort of managers and certainly a third of CEOs who think that they maybe aren't using the data they collect properly on people, that there's a lot of room for misgivings about how we're using data and how we're using the new tools of surveillance. But given this history, that there can be a very toxic combination of management's need for control and justification of things as a business necessity or to become more productive, that has to be questioned at some point. And we also have to question, this is kind of where we're going in the future, we also have to question the basis of any of this being talked about in privacy law, right? Especially when we talk about privacy being waivable, and you're hearing about these CEOs not even talking to their workers about this and getting worker consent because they're so uncomfortable with this. But we presume a lot of consent where there really isn't one in the workplace relationship. And then I think we need to go to the root question, which is autonomy. Which I I think, especially given the history of management in those life plantations, the question of worker autonomy has to be front and center. Like, what are you doing? What is the experience of the workplace? And we've lost that question in employment law. We've lost that question in our discussions of privacy. We've made privacy waivable. Autonomy shouldn't be waivable. Questions shouldn't be waivable. If you're talking about, you know, something that came from the slave system, that shouldn't be waivable. These aren't waivable issues. Those autonomy questions shouldn't be waivable. There needs to be a new discussion about that and a new look at that. And some more consideration about the full range of implications of these different techniques from, you know, the things that have to do a lot with thought control and the monitoring of keystrokes and the reading of text and emails and, and the policing of language in the workplace, literally, you know, 
there are monitoring systems that look at did you use, uh, does your language match those of your teammates such that you show that you're part of the team or are you going to be somebody creative and different and therefore we need to drum you out of the system? Like literally they have artificial intelligence looking at all this stuff. That level of getting into your mind and your psyche and your experience of being a worker, I think we need to be worried about. And I think that we need to really think about this as a continuum between the thought control things and then the really physical control of your body and, and the implantables and the exoskeletons and the other things that, that physically alter you because I think that has a very dark history. And without knowing where that history has been, we aren't really looking at those questions the way we should be. And frankly, and, and this brings up the final point, which is that one of the things that most disturbs me about a privacy analysis for these questions is, yes, we have this idea of worker consent, but then they have this check, which is the shock the conscience check that we see sometimes in California courts and elsewhere. Well, your conscience is only shocked the first time you see something. So even my, what, you know, to bring everything full circle to the very beginning of the questions that you asked me about the kids in the school in China, that shocks us now, but maybe five years from now that's not shocking, right? That doesn't shock the conscience. We know that over time that standard moves, that standard moves and our reaction to that moves. And frankly, even in a biomedical imaging, the, the amygdala, our fear in the center, like it fires less and less as we are exposed to these things. So I want to bring some of that indignation back. I want to bring some of that analysis back. And I want to do it before these things are completely ubiquitous. Josephine, where are you hoping to take this work and some of these questions in the future? Well, I gave you a little preview of that in the sense of this is part one of a series that I have planned. This part really talks about, we've discussed the history of modern management as being in those slave plantations of the U.S. South and the West Indies, and how that can be a very toxic combination with the tools of modern surveillance. And then I want to take that to the next article that I'm working on really has to do with this issue of is it privacy or is it autonomy? And I don't think that the analysis that we should do of the law in this area should be privacy. I think that we're talking about autonomy. We're something about privacy is waivable. Autonomy shouldn't be. There should be moments of you know, by the time you are doing brain scans of workers, is there some line that has been crossed? And there's a great quote from <laughs> someone who's going to speak up in China and say, you know what, consent is meaningless in that system. There's no consent in the Chinese system. And I'm, and, 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 um, there's been great work done by Julie Cohen, and I want to mention that I really, expand on what professors Ajinwa, Crawford, and Schultz have talked about in Limitless Worker Surveillance when they talk about the failure of U.S. privacy law to deal with these. We just don't address it in any way. We don't have meaningful checks on it. And we definitely aren't thinking about what the impact is on the worker and the psychological harm to the worker, the other harms to the worker from this collection of the, through surveillance. And I would like to bring that back front and center and talk about a proposal that talks about worker autonomy first and talk about autonomy as something that you really can't give consent. Like, like you can't, there's certain moments where we say, you know what, there's such a power differential here, there's such an inequity here that we will not permit this to happen. And I think that we need to bring some of that back in this area and not just a shock the conscience test, which keeps moving over time, but really look squarely at what we talk about as autonomy and protect that human autonomy. And then part three which I'm working on in pieces, 
is to look back at what the framers of the 13th Amendment intended. Because the 13th Amendment, as you know, ended slavery, but it was also supposed to be a forward-looking amendment, and it was supposed to think about, make sure that slavery didn't come back into our workplace. And one of the things that the jurisprudence seems to require is a historic tie to the methods of slavery, and we have that. We have that starkly from the wonderful work that historians and management studies people and these other people are doing. We have that bright, clear tie between the historic practices and where they came from and how they're being used today. And I'm not, I want to, I want to say again, I am not directly equating limitless worker surveillance with the far more brutal and terrible harms of slavery, but I am saying that we can see those techniques and we can see them and the 13th Amendment language is colorblind, and it has to do with workplace conditions, specifically workplace conditions. So I'm thinking about developing that tie and thinking about the 13th Amendment as the basis for new legislation to really protect worker autonomy on the basis of where this stuff came from and how it's being used. Our guest today has been Josephine Nelson, Associate Professor of Law at Villanova University, where she holds a courtesy appointment in the Department of Management and Operations at the Villanova University School of Business. She is a senior fellow at the Zicklin Center for Business Ethics and Research at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business, and she writes professionally under the name J.S. Nelson. We've discussed her recent article, Management Culture and Surveillance, which was published by the Seattle University Law Review as part of its Symposium on Corporate Culture. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Josephine, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.